We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone. So I have the distinct privilege of being here with Mr. Rex Sinkfeld, prime benefactor of the St. Louis Chess Club and, of course, the Sinkfeld Cup. Mr. Sinkfeld, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure, Ben. Thank you. So the chess world, of course, is extremely excited with the Sinkfeld Cup coming up. We were excited to begin with, and then the news came of uh, Mr. Kasparov's pending return. So to the extent that you are willing to reveal your secrets, do you mind telling us a little bit about how this uh, came to be? Uh, yeah, we were all sitting around having a lunch. I think it was myself and Joy, and I believe Mark was there, and a couple others. And uh, we were talking about the uh, Rapid and Blitz, and we had some wild cards. And Gary said, I'll be one of the wild cards. And so I, I thought about that for about a nanosecond and said, that's a good idea. You know? Wow, that's amazing. So he volunteered. Yeah, I mean, it's just been, I have to tell you, the history of this club I've never seen anything like it in my life. When I was in private business, in the investment management business, starting Dimensional Fund Advisors, it seemed like one bad thing after another occurred for the first two or three years, like there, as if there was an evil genius out there trying to destroy us. It's been just the opposite here. It's one good thing after another has happened to the club since 2009, since we've started. I mean, it's a, we've been incredibly fortunate, and uh, we have a tremendous staff, people like Joy Bray and Mark and, and Tony Rich and all those people. Uh, truly remarkable, but you know we would have never guessed that we would have become the largest membership club in the United States, never advertising for members. I mean, it was truly a case of we built it and they came. Right. Uh, well, I think a lot of the credit uh, goes goes to you and your team, of course. I mean, you guys have have invested so many resources and so much time in developing this um this uh, beacon for chess. So. Uh, to the to the extent the credit is doled, I mean, you may have had a few breaks, but I think a lot of it goes to uh, hard work. Um, so, what was your vision for the chess club when you founded it? Uh, much much more limited than what it has become. Uh, I thought it would be nice. We I had a had a dinner in a restaurant across the street, 
It's no longer there. And uh, was meeting with this young artist, ostensibly, to talk about his art. Well, he brought his uncle, and his uncle brought his friends. It turns out that these were two of the powers that be in St. Louis chess circles. And so the conversation quickly switched to chess. And I said, yeah, you know, I'd really have thought that it'd be nice to start a chess club here in St. Louis because we don't have one, something that, you know, we could play, you know, frequently and, and locate it close to where we are so we're close to the inner city schools so we can reach out to all of them. And they said, great, why don't we start looking for space? So the next huh. day, started walking and we looked for space. And after a couple of days, we saw this place and we realized this was just absolutely perfect. And we built it. And then... Uh, shortly thereafter, as it was being built out, actually, I was having dinner with Randy Bauer uh, on a totally unrelated matter. It had to do with financial economics of the city of St. Louis because he works for a firm called Public Finance Management, PFM, and his expertise is the operation and finances of city and state governments. And uh, But somehow he, he let slip that he was on the executive board of the U.S. Chess Federation. And... Uh, so I said, well, that's interesting. We're building out a chess club just a couple blocks from here. Why don't you come and look at it? So we walked on over, and I said, you know, one of my dreams is to sponsor a U.S. championship here. He said, well, you know, they're looking for a sponsor. He said, call this person. We called him, and that was it. And so we've done it nine years in a row now. So it's just it's been one amazing, fortunate thing after another. And we've gotten surrounded by extremely strong players. You know, we have grandmasters in here all the time. We now have Webster University, which has a whole bunch of strong GMs. St. Louis University, chosen as the the best university chess club of the, the year by the U.S. Chess Federation. We have Lindenwood College with a chess team. So we've got an abundance of strong players, including grandmasters. In fact, it's quite possible that St. Louis has more grandmasters in residence than any other city in the world. Yeah, it's incredible. And I know that you also have... Um you have visiting grandmasters that rotating grandmasters all the time, every day. Right. Yeah, it, it's incredible, and uh, your YouTube channel is a treasure trove for those of us trying to improve in chess. Um, speaking of which, I was uh, curious of how you initially got into chess. What sparked your interest in it? Well, I was always interested and curious, and when I was being raised in the orphanage, you know, I sometimes see scenes of chess in the movies like an old Westerns, and I was fascinated by just the shapes and the pieces and things, and said, gosh, I'd love to learn that, but nobody there knew how to play. So when I got out, my Uncle Fred, when I was 13, taught me how to play, and I beat him the second game, game and I've always felt a little bit guilty about that. Hmm. And so I just stayed with it, and in high school, uh, the high school I went to here in St. Louis, Bishop DeBerg, I joined their chess club and was on their chess team, and... Uh, you know, I, I stayed with it, but I really didn't get into tournament chess until I got out of the University of Chicago Business School. Got, got my MBA there in 72. 73, I played my first tournament game and continued to do that through 85, at which point my children were old enough that, and I was traveling too much for business, that I realized I could not continue to play tournament chess because of the obligations playing at night or playing on the weekends. So I told the family, I said, look, I, I have to postpone this for about 15 or 20 years but I do want to read you your Miranda rights. When this, <laughs> uh, when this period is over, it is my intent to go back into tournament chess. Now, I haven't been totally successful at that. I probably put, played a total of five or ten over-the-board tournament games in the last few years, and I'm starting to get harassed by everybody for being <laughs> intelligent and justi justifiably harassed. Right. 
Yeah, my kids are uh, four and one and a half, so I can certainly relate to uh, how how tricky it is to escape to a tournament. But uh, yeah, you got the same issue. You're 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 out, you're out of business for about twenty years now. Yeah, well, my I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to sneak away about four or five times a year. I don't go away on weekends, but when there's a local tournament here in Pittsburgh, I'm able to just play the one day event. And my wife That's is. Good to do it. I'm yeah. going to try to do that here in St. Louis. I have no excuse because we have <laughs> hundreds of tournaments here. Well. Know. Except I'm never in the city on the weekends. We have a country place two and a half hours from here. My wife is usually there. And then we have our two oldest children live in Columbia, Missouri, which is 120 miles straight west. So those weekends, I always prefer to be one of those two places. Okay. And uh, so tournaments, we know, are a big investment of time. But do you manage, I know that you take some lessons. Do you manage to um, practice online as well at all? Oh, I've got lots of games online. Right now, I probably have... I'm at a low point right now. I think I only have 10 or 12 games online <laughs> in both chess.com and GameNot. But typically, I have closer to 15 or 20 going all the time. That's great. And do you do the like uh, move a day or move per three day? Or what's your yeah, preference? Yeah, it's a daily chess. And uh, once in a while, I'll play a 10-minute game. And, and <clears throat> once in a while, if I'm really in a masochistic mood i'll do tactics <laughs> yeah i heard you mention in an interview that you uh you had met mike, mike Matheny, the manager of the cardinals and that he was into chess tactics and you kind of um you kind of suggested that they weren't they were kind of um i don't know how to put this but maybe a um you had a love-hate relationship with them well he said that he comes home from the ballpark every night everybody's asleep and he sits down and he does 20 minutes of tactics on chess.com and he said Rex, it really relaxes me. I said, Mike, you're weird. Tactics are not relaxing. They are stressful. It's the most stressful thing in chess. And, but my hat's off to him. He does it every day. And in fact, we have placed, we the club have placed two beautiful chess tables and pieces in the St. Louis Cardinals clubhouse. And, uh, and he said, it, it's just wonderful. He says, they've all gotten off their iPhones and the players just surround the chess tables. And all they want to do is play before the ball game. That's great. So if yeah, they're all incredibly competitive. Not surprising. Yeah, of course. Um, so if chess tactics are the most stressful aspect of chess, what would you say is the least stressful? Oh, I think the least stressful easily is learning a new opening, uh, because you get a lot of tangible accomplishments very quickly. If you yeah. remember the lines. <laughs> well, you will. It's easy enough to do for a decent chess player. You know, I've switched repertoire quite a bit under Jennifer. Um, I started off on the black side of D4 uh, using Lev Albert's book, this two-volume book, which I think is a fabulous book. And I started doing the Nimzo, and I just couldn't get it. It was just too many subtle variations by move three and four. And she said, okay, let's try the Queen's Gambit decline. So we tried that for a while. And then finally, this is about nine months ago, she said, wait. She said, this is way too slow and too boring for you. Hmm. Let's get serious. Let's go to the Grunfeld. Nice. So you're a, a swashbuckling player? Yeah, I said, Jennifer, I actually played this 30 years ago. And uh, she says that I clearly seem to have a good sense for the Grunfeld. It's not easy, but I do seem to get it. And I, on the white side, I, I'm very comfortable with Rui Lopez. I, I play it almost perfectly every line, nearly, not all lines, but nearly every line. And I've done it. I played that my whole career. And then uh, against the Sicilian, I'll play the Grand Prix. Um, and then against all the other black responses, I'm pretty much pretty well prepared. Nice. It's, fun, it's fun to learn a new opening because it's easy, it's relaxing. You have a real sense of accomplishment, you know. But tactics, a little a little bit more work. I, I can I definitely relate to that. It, um, it's more work, and it's so punishing because, like on chess.com, 
if you solve a puzzle, you get seven or eight points. If you miss one, you lose 15. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And yeah, and the clock is ticking. You have mm. to solve them within a certain amount of time. I, right. I, I understand for sure. Um, so getting back to the, the upcoming uh, uh, Sinkfeld Cup, um, and of course, Mr. Kasparov. So I don't know how much, once he volunteered, I don't know how much you got into the background, but our listeners will definitely be eager to hear as, as much about it as as can be divulged. So do you think this is something he was planning for a while or totally a uh, spur of the moment? Um, you know, that I don't know. He he did play an exhibition match a year or two ago against oh, Nigel Sharker. Yeah. And that attracted a lot of attention. And then he's, I've played in three simuls against him. And the guy is so intense. <laughs> you know, even when he comes up to my board, it's, he does, he has no recognition of who's there. He just, He's just going to kill me, and that's all there is to it. He doesn't acknowledge you or anything. He just looks at the board, and when he moves, it's like throwing a punch, you know. Um, so he's never really given it up. He's obviously quite involved. And um, so this will be an exciting month for us, August, because we start with the Sinkfield Cup, which may once again be the strongest tournament of all time in chess history, as it was two years ago and three years ago. Um, and then the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz, and Rapid and Blitz, I think, is inherently really exciting for the worldwide fans because you, you get to see, you know, several games in a day. I remember, gosh, it might be 15, 20 years ago, uh, I went on the Internet, and there was a Kasparov-Karpov exhibition match, four games in New York. And at that time, you had to pay like 10 or $15 to watch it. It was over two weekends, I think, uh, or maybe, maybe just Saturday and Sunday. But I watched it intently. It was so much fun. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, the chess world is definitely excited. One question I had for you is uh, so many of us, uh, the listeners and myself, are, are so appreciative of everything you do to, to help promote chess and to put on these fantastic events. So I was wondering, like, what, what we can do? Is there something that, that uh, just the general fan can do to, to help you in your mission to promote chess? Well, they can always donate money to the St. Louis Chess Club. We're always looking for it. And, you know, we do help a lot of out-of-state people, too, and, and people around the world who, who need to get into chess, who need to travel, stuff like that Great. In, the scholastic, in the scholastic world. So if they ever want to donate, it's, it's a very worthwhile cause. None of it's going to me. It's all going to scholastic chess. Excellent. And do you have a vision for chess and scholastic chess? Do you have, like, a five-year plan, or do you just sort of take things as they come up? I think we take them as they come up. We just keep everybody here. It, it's wonderful. We keep saying, what can we do better? What are we not doing that we should be doing? How do we make this perfect? And one of the areas that I think we've done the best job on, aside from pure high quality of chess, is the production side and the broadcast side. Oh, of course, yeah. I, I tell people, and I say it sincerely, that we have physically the best broadcast product with all the cameras and a lot of it is, is partly run by my son, who is a full-time uh, in the full, full-time movie business, and he's doing well there. Set up a big studio in Columbia, Missouri. He got his degree from Brooks Institute, was the number one graduate out there some years ago. And he said, "You know, I says, I could kick around here in L.A. in the movie business and not get anywhere, or I could go to Columbia, Missouri, and build the biggest studio Missouri has ever seen." Right. Big. That's what he did. It was a brilliant move. And he's made like four movies. They have the next one's coming out soon. It's called uh, Lost in America. It's about uh, homeless teenagers in America. And he's got as his co-producers John Bon Jovi, Russell Simmons, Haley Bailey, and one other 
person. And, uh, you know, and they, they just wanted to be part of it. I think Bon Jovi's actually in the movie. But so he's, he's been very, very successful there. And then our broadcast team, I say quite sincerely that we have the best broadcast team with Yasser Sirawan, Jennifer Shahadi, Maurice Ashley, uh, and all of our other commentators. Uh, we have the best broadcast team of any sport on any TV station in the world. Yes, I agree. I, I'm. I think they're they're outstanding, and I've heard good things. I've yet to make it for either a U.S. Championship or the Sinkfeld Cup to St. Louis. But oh, you got to get down here. You'll be Mark and I, special guest. Oh wow, nice uh, rolling out the red carpet. Um, yeah, I mean, but I've heard amazing things. I mean, with like uh, Ben Feingold and uh, you know Eric Hansen and grandmasters like that sitting next oh, door and analyzing the games in real time. Uh, yeah, that that would be incredible to see. Um, as soon as I. Uh, can offload these pesky children. I'm gonna gonna make it down there for sure. Oh yeah, try to come this year. I mean, Feingold, that guy's a stand-up comic. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I used to live in the same building as him, and he's been a guest on this podcast. He is a, he is one of a kind. Same building. Where in what city? In Brooklyn, actually. Little known chess trivia. Uh, me, Jennifer Shahadi, and Ben Feingold all lived in the same building at one point in about the year 2000. Oh um, my God. Well, uh, <laughs> more more trivia in the world of. Investment Management, Dimensional Fund Advisors' first office was at 48 Remsen Street in Brooklyn Heights. It was my partner's apartment. <laughs> we converted several rooms to a trading room, etc., etc., for DFA. Now we're up to about 1,300 people worldwide, but humble start there in Brooklyn Heights. Nice. Yeah, I remember. I had, Remsen Street is quite lovely these days. I'm not sure what it was like then. It was beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so getting to your background, um, I, you know, this is a chess podcast, and I think people people know in broad brushstrokes what what it's um, uh, where you made your start. But uh, I did want to talk a little bit about the world of uh, investing. So um, uh, you were the sort of one of the godfathers of the efficient markets um, uh, theory and founder of the um, one of the first index funds. Is that a uh, that's that's true. I, I can say that I built the first, built and ran the first index funds in the galaxy. They started September 4th, 1973 at the then American National Bank of Chicago. And I was a product of the University of Chicago of Gene Fama and the late great Merton Miller, both Nobel laureates. Um, and it was there that I learned the, uh, <clears throat> the meaning of the idea that markets work. And it, it's uh, a religion to me. Actually, I think it's a science, not a religion, because it's based on solid fact. But, but the people who hold it hold it with a religious fervor, and encourage people to invest in accordance with its implications. Yeah. Uh, so we built dimensional fund advisors all around the idea of, of holding, uh, oh, we call them fourth generation index funds, not the plain vanilla index fund like the S and P, which is the first one that I started. Uh, <clears throat> but things that have a little more torque, a little more exposure to different types of of risk, risk that are known to be compensated in the capital markets. There's a lot of risks you can take, but most of them do not get compensated. So why take them? But the financial theory and and financial uh, <clears throat> field has said there are some systematic risks that exist in the marketplace. It goes on to define what they are and how one can exploit them. So in terms of uh, compensated for risk, uh, are you referring to sort of the like risk premium of owning stocks versus owning other things? Or well, Yeah, that's, see, that's a very good example. The, the, the first risk premium that everyone talked about was they just call it the risk premium or the market risk premium. You hold stocks rather than treasury bills. The pre- it's known that the premium is about 
seven percentage points a year average return over a hundred years. Um, other factors are if you hold a portfolio of distressed companies that goes by the misnomer of value companies or value hmm. stocks. These are stocks or companies whose market prices are very low relative to their book values. And that's because they've been doing a lousy job in the earnings dimension, and they're going to continue to do so. <laughs> and everybody knows that. So the, the stocks are priced low to compensate for that kind of risk. And on average, uh, those companies do, uh, as a group, as a class, they deliver higher average returns than the S&P 500, several hundred basis points more. But you are taking additional, additional risk, so there's no free lunch anywhere here. Another factor is known as the size factor. Small companies, on average, as a group, will outperform larger companies. And the feeling is, if you look at their, their degree of volatility, they're clearly far more variable than big companies. And so that's taken as a symptomatic of the presence of risk, for which, on average, there is compensation. Not as much as there is in the value effect. But the nice thing about these effects is they work world worldwide. That's what is sort of the killer argument that these things are real. You find them in one part of the world, then you go test them in an entirely out-of-sample part of the world, and you get the same result. And if you test them, like the, the Fama, famous Fama French paper, 1992, uh, the, <clears throat> um, the uh, cross-section of expected returns, looking at different types of risk, they did that one looking at the U.S. market from 64 to about... Um, 92 at the time, and then uh, later on, someone compiled a database and was able to take that test back 1926 through 1963, and they got the identical results. And I always tell people that those starting dates are important, 1926 and 1964, because in each of those years, the St. Louis Cardinals beat the New York Yankees. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's sort of like the uh, the. I know that you're a Cardinals fan, but it's sort of like the old Super Bowl study of I can't remember what it was, but you know, in in years where the AFC wins, the stock market outperforms or something like that. I mean, obviously, it's right. kind of ridiculous. But getting getting to baseball, I know you're a big fan. So are you uh, are you looking for the Cardinals to make a trade? Well, you know that's a tough one. That's always talked about here. <clears throat> we got a couple guys they could trade, but. Um, we're bringing up these kids from the minor leagues, and they're just hitting the cover off the ball. We brought up four kids recently, and they're all hitting over 300. One of them's hitting 444. Um, he's got like, what, 30? Uh, he's got 16 hits and 29 at bats, and all singles. Um, but so they've been so fortunate. The same with some of their pitchers. So I don't know that they really need to bring anybody up or trade anybody. You just need to teach these guys the basics. You know, stop getting getting run out of the inning on the bases. Bonehead plays like that. <laughs> it can be frustrating as a fan for sure. Yeah, yeah on paper they have a very talented team, and most people agree they probably have the best starting staff in the National League. Uh, I could quibble. I mean, I might put the Nationals first, but they're certainly uh, they're strong. Yeah, sure. Um, they're very strong too. Yeah. But uh, certainly looking better than my Phillies. <laughs> um, so, so circling back to uh, to finance one uh, just for a second, because uh, I mean it's your field of expertise. You were preceded on this podcast. We're recording here on Tuesday the 18th and an interview with Hikaru Nakamura has just come out and Hikaru has taken quite a liking to trading options and I think he's been doing pretty well at it recently. So I was curious, if what advice would you or have you given to him about uh, about the trading business? 
I told him not to do it. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Uh, why? Well, <clears throat> there's no evidence that these things are mispriced. Now, I can't comment on his record because I've never seen it. And I'm pretty sure there will never be an audited uh, report of his performance record. Uh, this is the thing about investment companies. You know, they're very good at talking about their incredible performance, and they're very good about ignoring their failures. Yes. Uh, so there's always sort of an upward bias in their reporting. I can't say that's true for Ricardo because I just don't know. He's certainly a bright fellow. I will tell you this. He knows what he's doing. I give him credit for that. He knows all about options and futures, uh, and it's a pretty technical field, and I think that if he ever decided to leave chess, he could go into the investment world and do very, very well. Although he might want to stop by somewhere and get an MBA first. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, tough to do part-time. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so getting back to uh, to chess and um, talking about Hikaru and the upcoming competitors, I'm sure you've had a chance, in addition to meeting Kasparov and all the current competitors, you've had a chance to meet all of these chess-playing legends. So is there one in particular who, who stands out to you as particularly an interesting person or a memorable story um, from there's a there's a bunch of them. Uh, you know, we had an exhibition here about four or five years ago with Yasser Sirawan versus Anatoly Karpov, and uh, Karpov turned out to be a delightful fellow. And um, you know, there's the whole story about how he and Fisher did not have a match in 1975. But what I didn't know, and I, I'd read part of it, and I heard it from him firsthand. He and Fisher had negotiated three different times <clears throat> to have a match. And finally, they had agreed on everything. And I remember being in Indonesia in 1976, boarding a plane for Bali with my wife, who was working there at the time. And the English language newspapers said, Fisher Karpov agreed to $10 million chess match. Now, you got to understand, Indonesia is a country of chess nuts. It is literally, I'm not making it up, there's chess on every street corner in Indonesia. So if you're a chess aficionado, that's a wonderful place to get lost. And when I used to visit there, I would play chess every night with the gardener, and then my wife would bring in, you know, they bring in these uh, hucksters from the hills. and <laughs> so We'd be playing chess every night. I studied every day. And um, so when we're in Bali, I going down there for three days of vacation, naturally I have to bring my chess books and my regular chess set and my pocket chess set and my wife says you know you could pay a little more attention to me you know how wives are <laughs> um <clears throat> at the end of the trip we're sitting in the uh reception lounge at don Pasar airport waiting to fly back to jakarta and there's a little curio shop and there's two people in there and i turn to my wife and i say Jeannie, you're not going to like this but that fellow on the left is bobby fisher <laughs> and she had several expletives deleted and uh so I actually got to talk to him briefly. He was on the same flight going back to Jakarta. I also, of course, met Florencio Campomanes, uh, who was flying with Fisher. Okay. And uh, So that was a fascinating experience. Fisher was very impressive in person. So meeting Karpov was a delight. And when he was here, we asked him, said, Anatoly, is there anything you really want to do while you're in St. Louis? He goes, Rex, there's one thing I've always wanted to do my entire life. I said, please, what is it? He goes, I want to see the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi. So I mean, oh, wow. I was floored by that request, but we got a car and driver and took him up there, went over to the Illinois side, up in Big Bluffs in Alton, Illinois, looking down, and, and <clears throat> Joy Bray said he was like a kid in a candy shop. <clears throat> that, that's, so, sorry, go so ahead. Many, so many of these great players are such nice people, 
I mean, you're not going to meet a nicer guy than Levon Aronian, or, or a funnier one, or Vichy Anand. Uh, and Peter Svitler is a Russian who speaks the King's English. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we had him on. He speaks English better than I do. He speaks English better than all of us. Yeah. And um, truly impressive. Um, but all of these guys are, are delightful. You know, Fabiano Cardellano, Wesley, so... They're all truly delightful people, fun to be with. We have occasions to go out with them some days for dinners after the games. And uh, I'm amazed at, you know, how controlled they are emotionally. They don't get upset. They don't display anything. You know, they're very well behaved. They're nice. They're, they're a real credit to the whole uh, profession, the whole yeah. chess world. Yeah, they're, they're true pros. So it sounds like it, you don't have too much of a rooting interest when, uh, when these tournaments take place. Well... I do have my, my favorites. I mean, I am biased toward those who are associated with St. Louis. I have to confess that. But, you know, how could it be any other way? Yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't even mentioned the Olympiad. We're so, we're so grateful for, for the work you've done to, to help uh, America put its best foot forward in the, in the Olympiads. Yeah, and I think, I'm pretty sure that we just about have a deal wrapped, wrapped, up, wrapped up to take the Olympiad team and their coaches to the White House to meet the president. Wow, incredible. I know that that was a bit of a, a social media um, cause celebre uh, when they got back, but um, I hadn't heard anything about it for a while. That's awesome. Yeah, we're working through Vice President Pence's office. I've gotten to know him uh, pretty well, even before he was selected by Trump. In fact, we had an event for him at my house here in St. Louis when he was still running for governor of Indiana. And just three weeks ago, my wife and I went with a group and had dinner with him at his residence in D.C. He's truly a delightful fellow. Does he have any interest in chess? He does now. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Okay. One step from the president's office. That's great. That's great yeah. to hear. Um, okay. Well, I know, Mr. Sinkfeld, that you guys are busy preparing for this tournament and ha have a lot to do. So um, I, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Is there, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to mention uh, before well, we I let just you go? That, yeah, I think that I sh we should tell the whole chess world that you need to come to St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, you're not the first person to say that here. So uh, I think it has credibility. I mean, I've heard incredible things. My friend Mike Klein, of course, like who oh, covers yeah. chess, you know, he says just as a fan, you, you know, you you have to come. Oh, yeah. Mike is, is wonderful. I play tennis with him when he's here. Oh, nice. Yeah. Last time we were on a team together and we actually beat um, MVL and Ray Robson. Nice. Excellent. We're, we're both good players. Uh, and uh, they just had a bad day. MVL had a bad day, and Klein's really a good, steady tennis player. Yeah, yeah, he takes uh, whatever he does seriously. So, yeah, um, well, even I, joking. <laughs> even I, I would say to the whole chess world, come to St. Louis. Excellent. Well, the, we'll, As the song says, "Meet me in St. Louis." Excellent. Well, we will be there, Mr. Sinkfeld. Thank you so much for everything you do for chess. I, um, thank so, you. so many of us are so appreciative and and never get the chance to say thanks. So, I'll pu I'll put a link to uh to the donation for the St. Louis Chess page on the notes, and I will make a donation. And I really appreciate uh, all you've done. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for this time. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.